Good evening. Glad to see all of you. Lots of great conversation going on. If I might uh, gracefully interrupt as we gather together to worship our God again. As I say many times, we get to this midweek, push the pause button and uh, let life, life pause and get into God's presence and allow him to uh, adjust our thinking and allow us to be reminded of who he is and uh, how great he is and what he desires us to be as his kids. So we're glad that each one of you are here. We're glad if you're joining us uh, tonight uh, online. Well, welcome. We're so glad with, that you're here. Well, tonight we're going to connect with our God as we worship him through song, as we worship him through the study of the word, as you can see, as we worship him through communion this evening. And so I invite you to stand and let's begin to worship him and give him our lives this evening. Oh, 
worship you. We don't want to go through the motions, but we want to worship you, to give you our complete self this evening as we sing praises to you and as we study your word. May you be honored. May you be glorified as we sing in your presence.
of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness stands from light. There's a reason why we stand here now forgiven. Jesus is alive. There's a reason why we are not overtaken. There's a reason why we sing on through the night. There's a reason why our hope remains eternal. Jesus is alive. Raise the King. Risen, 
to be reminded of your incredible holiness. You are a holy God and so we enter into your presence with reverence, with honor, because you are due all of the glory and majesty to your name. But we also thank you for coming, being like us, giving your life. But we also know that we serve a God who is alive and well, sitting at the right hand of majesty on high, taking care of our every need, watching over us, guiding us. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace, your mercy, and your incredible, unending, steadfast love. We worship you, King Jesus. Amen. Have you ever talked to somebody and, and you've witnessed to them and you shared with them and you thought, what is it going to take for you to believe? That is one of the most frustrating things that I could ever encounter is just wanting to share. It's like, you want to shake them sometimes. It's like, come on, wake up. Now we can't do that in this day and age, but maybe in Jesus' day, I don't know. Can you imagine being Jesus, though? The Messiah, God incarnate, that's come to His own people and even those in His own town, His own place. You know, He'll say, and we'll cover it tonight, that a prophet is without honor in his own country. Sometimes it's the most diff- the people that are closest to us and the family members. They're the hardest, aren't they, to share the gospel with for them to come to faith. And it's amazing to me that they will listen to other people and they won't listen to you. And, and, and have you ever had that where you share something with them, even spiritually, and they go, you know, I, I heard this and it was just amazing. It's like, I've told you that already. As Jesus is continuing in his ministry and growing in his ministry, John is accounting not all of the details, but he is writing lessons for us to be able to believe, and even some of the frustrations. There were limitations that were being placed upon him by his own people that I'm sure was very frustrating. And here as we come into John chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus' ministry expand, and he's going to go to a place that is not traditionally religious. He's going to go up to the Galilee, and on the way there, he's going to go to Samaria, and he's going to share the gospel. And the amazing fact out of John chapter 4 is this. Jesus will go for the sake of one, which is powerful. If there was only one 
if you were the only one that would receive and believe in Jesus, He would come and die on the cross for you. How do we know that? Because time and time again throughout His ministry, He is coming for the one. And we're going to see that tonight as we move through this. One of the things that we'll see in the beginning here is that as Jesus' popularity grows, so does the animosity against Him. In chapter 4, verses 1-6, through six, it says, Therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. John parenthetically says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. And he left Judea and went away again into the Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So as we come to this, we see that Jesus in verses 1 and 2 is moving away from Jerusalem. Why? One of the problems that Jerusalem had was it was highly religious and it was callous to the things of God. Their religion had become so structured and so full of liturgy that they weren't open to hear the gospel message or receive grace. Which is a very dangerous place to be when your religion now is a roadblock to faith. Can you think of people that are like that? Where even the Messiah himself that comes to his people. And so these Pharisees, they became jealous. Why did they become jealous? Popularity. The Pharisees were one of the sects. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. And those were the three divisions of the leadership. And they were all part of the, the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees in particular, they liked the accolades of the people. They liked the crowds. They would dress in their robes and go through the areas and say, look at me for my, my prayer life and all of these different things. And they were all show and no go. And, and they became jealous. Why? Because the popularity of Jesus had grown so much that his popularity was exceeding John the Baptist. And we know that they had a problem with John the Baptist, but as long as he kept his popularity out in the desert, that was okay. But now he's moved into the city. Now he's in our territory. And he's gotten into our sandbox. And they didn't like other people playing in their sandbox. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to do battle. And I love the discernment. Question. Could Jesus have stayed in Jerusalem, established his authority, his position? Could he have just said, you know what? I'm here. You're done. You're all fired. You're out. He could have done that. But he didn't. Why? Because he was on a specific mission that his father had sent him. So instead of staying in, staying in Jerusalem, where religion had a stranglehold on the people, he went to the countryside. He went to the Galilee. Now typically, if you were to leave Judea, which is the region of the south, and then you were to go to the Galilee, which would be the region of the northern area, the middle region was the region of the who? Samaritans. If you were a good Jew, you would go all the way around along the Jordan River and go all the way up to the north. Jesus didn't ascribe to being the good Jew. Why? Because Jesus had a divine appointment. He didn't, he didn't allow boundaries and barriers 
to stop him. When someone needed to hear the gospel, to receive grace, he would go to them. And he didn't let leprosy or stigma or any of these other things stop him. Which to me is powerful. Because he didn't fall into the suit of, of what these religious leaders were following after. There was a huge need of one person in Samaria. A woman. And Jesus had a divine appointment to keep. And through this one woman that would be considered an outcast of the society, he would go to meet with her. And I love the fact that he, it says he left Judea and he went away again to the Galilee. But notice in verse 4, it says he what? Had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to? Because he was on mission. He was on mission. Jesus knew that he was going to meet with this woman at a specific place, at a specific time, in order to bring to her a peace that would pass all understanding. He knew that once he got up into the Galilee, he would do 80% of his teachings, 80% of his miracles, to the Galileans that the Jewish group didn't like. Now, when you think about these Samaritans, why were they so bad? And we've covered it before, but these Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. They were part of the Assyrian. The Assyrians removed them, and when they came back, they intermarried within the people of the land, which made them not a full Jew in, in the Jewish culture and the Jewish mind. And so as they were considered outcasts from Jerusalem, what you may not know is because they were treated so poorly in Jerusalem, they created their own faith system. Instead of Mount Zion being the place where they would go and worship, which God had established that there'd be one place, they said, look, we are treated so poorly, we are going to make Mount Gerizim our worship center in Samaria. We're going to stay in, into this area. And so within this, the Samaritans at this time had their own place of worship. Why? Because they were treated poorly. I often wonder, can we create such a barrier to faith that we feel that our place is the only place and you are not qualified to come worship with us and create a silo? So much so that we create the silo that a whole class of people will not feel welcome in, in your presence? And thus, they have to create their own place of worship? Is God divided? Is the body of Christ divided? No. One faith, one God, one Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to unite, not to divide. Man divides. Satan destroys. But God unites. And I love the fact that Jesus is crossing this boundary, going into a no-man's land, to be able to share with a woman the truth about worship. So Jesus comes to this place called Sychar, Jacob's well. It was a place that was out in, the, in this de desert area. It was a land, and it's interesting to me that the Samaritans, because they were Jews, they all shared the same patriarchal heritage. They all came from the same place. And so they used this, this well which is important, and it was a good place to meet with this particular woman. Why? Because it was where she would go every day. So as we come to this divine appointment, verses 7 through 10, 
It says, and he came out by Jacob's well about the sixth hour. It was about noontime. And came out and he was sitting out there. Now, again, if you've been out in the desert area in noontime, not typically the place you want to be out working and, and all of that. And again, if, you rem- if you've been on our Israel trip, you remember we drove around the outskirts or the sides of Samaria. It's just this big, flat, no tree desert area. Jesus is sitting out alongside this, this well. And uh, verse 7 says, There came a woman out of Samaria, or a woman of Samaria, to draw water. And he said to her, Give me something to drink. For the disciples had gone away to buy food. So he comes out. And interesting, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John parenthetically says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So this woman comes, Jesus is sitting by this well, and he says to the disciples, why don't you guys run into town and go get something to drink? Or go get something to eat. I heard there's a Chick-fil-A and an In-N-Out right down there on the corner. So he sends them off. Was Jesus really hungry? No. He sends him off, but this woman comes out. Jesus viewed this woman as one of the lost sheep that needed to be rescued. If you remember the parable, that he is the good shepherd. And he would, go, he would leave the 99 and go after the one. He saw this woman, knew this woman would be there, this sixth hour coming in, this, this, this noontime that is there, to go get water. Now, what makes this so odd? The women were in charge of getting the water, and you'd have to go get your water every day. They would typically go out a group in the morning. Why would they go as a group? It was much safer that way. Why would they go in the morning? Much cooler. And they would go and they would fill their jars together, and then they would walk together and talk about family and kids and whatnot. And then they would go back out. This woman comes out by herself at noontime. Is that a red flag? Sure. There's something going on with her. Why is she coming out midday by herself? Well, because she had been ostracized by all the other women. Jesus saw this and knew this was a habit of this one. And made sure that he was there for this one. And then, in something that we can learn in evangelism, he uses a common object or a common instance to start up a conversation. He says, woman, can you give me something to drink? Now, he's sitting on a rock or something right next to this well. And they would have to remove the cover. So the well would be very short. They would have rocks and stones around it to keep animals from going in. The cover would be removed. And then they would lower down their pots, get their water, and then they'd fill up their pitchers. And Jesus is sitting there and says, can you give me something to drink from this well? And her first response is, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a what? Woman. So he's crossing the social line of of both talking to her as a Jew, talking to a Samaritan, and talking to her as a woman. He was violating what was the social social norm with that. And it was kind of making her a little bit off-put. She just didn't know how how to respond to that with that, especially since they were so hated. Within this. And again, Jesus opens this conversation. 
And when you study it in the, the Greek language, it says, give me something to drink was not a request. It's a command. The tense is imperative with that. Now, again, not in, in, in our culture, if you told a woman, woman, give me something to drink. She probably would punch you in the face. Right? Men, do not try that at home. Well, Jesus did it. Yeah, well, he was God and you are not. So, but in the culture, the women would serve in such a way. And so he asked her and, 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 and basically tells her and says, give me something to drink. Now, why was she coming to the well? She was coming to the well for water within this. And he relates to this woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 to 23. Paul really lays out the methodology of evangelism where he says this, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when you are sharing with somebody, relate to them. Find that common conversation with them. Years ago, I went on a missions trip to Holland. And I was just outside of Amsterdam in a, in a town called Katwijk aan Zee. And it was a beach community in a beach town. And, and we had done some witnessing. We had a worship team that was on the street corner and they were doing music. And I'm not a musician and I don't sing, so I didn't really kind of fit into that. But I saw some kids that were skating in, in kind of this quasi-skateboard park that was over there. And I went over there and started talking with them. And I, I, I was much younger then. So then I got on the skateboard and started skating. And they're looking at this stupid American actually knows how to skate. So I was skating. So then we sat down and we started talking. I started sharing the gospel with them. And I had these three kids that were sitting there, and they're sitting on their skateboards, and we're sitting there, and we're just having this conversation. And I got to have a conversation with them and share Jesus. Now, I would encourage you, for most of you, please don't go down to St. Helens Skate Park and try skating with those kids. We don't have enough ambulances in the county for this. But when you connect with people, find that way to connect. And that's what Jesus did. He, he connects over this daily chore of getting water, did he really need the water? No. But he wanted to start the conversation. And he says to her, can you give me some water? Right? She says, what are you talking to me? And then he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, that's pretty interesting in the fact that Jesus brings out this, this spiritual statement. If you knew who was talking to you, and you don't, you would have asked him to give you some living water, which is interesting. And again, she would have understand this, this clause, the way that it, that it is phrased, that you would give me this living water. And, and so she didn't really know. There's, have you ever heard the saying, you don't know what you don't know? And in Jesus' evangelism, he's talking to somebody that doesn't have a clue. And we have to remind ourselves that when we're talking to somebody that is not saved, not regenerated, full of the Spirit, 
we're talking to them and they don't know what they don't know because they're not spiritual. So we should stay away from some of the spiritual language, but we should give them a nugget, a nugget that is going to mm, wet their whistle. Something that is going to inspire them, that's going to create attention. He uses the water that they need for living. The rule of thumb in the Middle East, especially in this culture, whoever controlled the water controls life. There is one main water source in, in the land of Israel, and that's the Jordan. It comes from three northern tributaries out of the, out of the north and feeds into one river, the Jordan River. That's the water. And whoever controls that water controls life. Now, granted, they have some wells, but people would fight over wells. Water is super, super important. They need water to live. And so Jesus uses his analogy of living water. He would give you living water. Now, he knew that this woman was thirsty. She was out getting water. But she was really relationally thirsty. She had a thirst that needed to be quenched, and she was trying to quench it in a lot of different ways. Her life was empty. Jesus knew that she had been married four times, and the guy she was living with was not her husband. Did this person need living water? Yes. Did she need fulfillment? Yes. And that's why Jesus came. He gave to, to bring His presence, to bring fulfillment. As a Christ follower, here is what you have. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And when you enter into any conversation with any person, can I rephrase that? When you enter into every conversation with every person, you are to bring the presence, the holy presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit there. That's your role. The world is thirsty and looking for fulfillment. And so when you engage in a conversation with somebody, realize that your number one job is to bring the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment that you have from being filled with the Spirit. And as Jesus would say, let out of your innermost beings flow torrents of living water. That's our role. So Jesus is there and knows this woman, and he knows her history, but how do I get her there? Well, he does it through conversation. He asks good questions, and he makes good statements. The woman was at the well at the water source. He knows that she's thirsty. She's on a temporal level, but she, in her deep part of her being, is looking to be satisfied. So she snarkly says, in verses 11 to 15, she said to him, Sir... You can almost hear her, right? Sir, you've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And it's implying no. Who gave this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I, note, I will give him, shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. 
Now, that's a powerful statement. Because what is Jesus doing? He is claiming that he is the source of life. You can come out here every day, and you have to come out here every day, and you have to go get a fresh you know, bottle of water and, and to be able to do that every day. Drink from this well, you will never be satisfied. What are the wells that the world is drinking from? Think about them. The well of money, the, the well of fame, the well of possessions, the well of, of social identity, how many likes you got, how many followers you got, you know, how many tweets you got, and all the other stuff. The, the, the well of feeling like you're plugged in, the well of, of human relationships, the well of human love. And how many times do people keep going back to those wells and they come up, well, it didn't fill me today, so what do I do? I've got to go back and I've got to go to this next well. And when that well dries up, what do they do? They go to the next well, and then they go to the next well, and then they go to the next well. Why? Because they never find satisfaction. We keep going back, and, and you know we think of the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And we keep going back to those wells. And Jesus says, if you keep coming to this well, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to have to come out here all the time. Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote that. Now, should Solomon have been satisfied with everything in his life? He should have. He had everything. He had money, he had power, he had fame, he had wisdom, he had women, he had everything. And what does he say? Vanity, vanity, all things are vanity, empty. And so he would write, all of man's labor for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. And we don't have to go very far. You can take a look at the, the, the news media, the social media, you can find all of these different things and people have all this money and stuff. They're not satisfied. And so they keep chasing after these things. You know, there, there are people that do things to their bodies. Why? Because they're never satisfied. They've got, they got to go fix this, or they've got to implant this, or they've got to inject this, or they've got to do all these other things to try to make them feel satisfied. And it's never quite enough. She'll fill her pot today with water, but it'll be empty by the end of the day. Do you find your satisfaction in the Lord? Are you satisfied? Is God enough? In whatever state you find yourself, is God enough? Proverbs 13.25 says this, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. When you find yourself going, I want... That should be that red flag going, uh-oh. Our life should be an open hand. God, put in my life whatever you want. Take out of my life whatever you want to take out. As Job would say, what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. People think that their life will be full of their possessions and the things, but it's not there. If I just get this, I'll be happy. No. The drink is just the provision for the day. 
But experiencing Jesus is going to give you that satisfaction. I have met people in foreign countries in Mexico, Mozambique, all these, Romania, these places that I've gone that have been completely satisfied with much less than what we have. Because they have the Lord. The family that we have been supporting, there's about nine of them that have been being supported by us and other churches in Romania is getting on a plane this week. And they're flying to some new homes. And they've been provided. And they are just blessed because they've been supported. Because their provision is from the Lord. Our best attempt at satisfaction will never be enough. But if the Creator of the universe provides for you, is that enough? The answer is yes. And and we look at this. I cannot provide for myself enough, but God can. And so this woman, she says, look at, I I, I want some of that water. He says, if you come to me, I'm going to give you that living water. And out of that living water is going to spring forth this life. So in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor what? Come all the way here to draw. When you look at that verse, verse 15, what is her, where's her mind at? Give me the living water so magically I never have to come out to this well again. So magically I don't ever have to come draw water again. I'll have this, that my thirst, she's thinking on the temporal not in the eternal. She hasn't. Why? Because she doesn't know what she doesn't know. She's looking just to, to have her life satisfied. And I think there's a lot of people that look at Christianity that way. I'll become a Christian so that I could have the easy life and the good life. Because if I become a Christian, it's going to be easy and it's going to be good. Is that true? No. You don't follow Christ for the good life or the easy life. You follow Christ for the godly life. And the godly life is going to have difficulties. But the godly life is also going to have a peace that passes all understanding that will garrison or guard your heart and your mind. And so within this, Jesus is offering the godly life. Why? Because this woman is unsatisfied because the ungodly life that she's living. We have people that live under bridges and that live in, in dilapidated shacks and all of these other things. And we can take them out and we can put them in a house and we can give them three squares a day and we can give them all the different things that, that their body craves. But are they ever going to be satisfied? The answer is what? Absolutely no. Absolutely no. What we need to do is give them Jesus. Do we need to take care of their necessities? We do. But we need to give them Jesus. And help them help themselves. Coach them, encourage them, and love them. And that's what Jesus is doing with this woman. If you look at verses 16 to 18, what Jesus does is what I think we should do. Jesus challenges her lifestyle. He doesn't walk around it. He goes right at it. Look at what he says. He says, but he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've answered correctly. I, I have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one you're now living with is not your husband. You've said this truly. One of, I love what Jesus says. He, he just goes right after it. 
I mean, you think about the whole thing. He goes and he sits by the well. She comes up. Woman, give me some water. Well, snarkily she says, you don't got anything to draw water. He's, and he has this whole conversation about living water. And then he says, woman, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. She goes, yeah, you're right. Because you're living an immoral life. You've had five and the guy you're with is not even your husband. He calls out her behavior. In our world today, we are scared to call people out on their behavior. But it's their behavior that is hurting their life. And so Jesus is not afraid to call her out with the behavior because what does he want to do? Here's the concept that Jesus lays out. I want to remove that old life and I want to give you a new life. So let's call out the old life and remove it and let's get a new life. This water that's not working for you anymore, this well's not working, I want to give you this living water that is there. And what was this woman really looking for? What was her, her spiritual diagnosis, if you will? What was Jesus saying? It's not about the husbands. It's about her sense of loneliness and trying to fill that void with a human relationship that is there. And she was struggling with this, this idea of loneliness. And it's been said, loneliness is an emotional siphon that will suck dry even the strongest individual over time. I love that quote. I don't even remember it. I didn't even write down where I got it from. It's not mine. Loneliness is an emotional siphon that will suck dry even the strongest individual over time. We are created to be with people. And we are created to be in relationship with God and with one another. Do you remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Do you remember what he ended up doing because he was lonely? He found the beach ball or the uh, volleyball named Wilson, right? And he would talk with Wilson regularly. He even got mad at Wilson, I think, and threw him out into the ocean and was so upset because his friend was there. And how many people create their friends Wilson? Because of loneliness. People will do whatever it takes to fill that void. The problem is, there's only one way that void could be filled. Blaine Pascal said this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. There is only one way that that vacuum, that hole, is going to be filled. And it's Jesus. And you can shove whatever you want in there, but it's not going to work. Go get your husband. But again, the problem was that she was just there. I got to thinking about how many people do that today. So I googled Pew Research to find out some... You know you can Google just about everything, right? Pew Research 2019 came up with these results that 53% of adults 18 and older are living together that are not married. And within that, it's down from the 58% the, the 58% in 1995, which means that, that less people are getting married today than what they were in 1995 by 7%, 7 to 8%. 69% of Americans say that cohabitation is acceptable even if the couple doesn't plan on getting married. And those that are under 30 are more likely to live together. 
the statistic is 78%, even though they don't plan on getting married. And statistically, there's a lot of other statistics that I looked up. Those that come from a divorced home have a 75% rate of moving in with their significant other or that other person prior to marriage because they don't want to repeat the same mistakes of their divorced parents within that. It was interesting to me also that in the same report, they noted married adults have a higher level of relationship satisfaction and trust with their living partner at 58%. What they think is intuitive by filling the void of moving in without a covenant commitment is actually destructive. And those that are married have a higher satisfaction rate. Statistically, when we take a look at this, this woman five times married and then one time living with a guy, she was not satisfied. Now, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt because in the Near Eastern culture, there was no welfare system. If you were a woman and you were not widowed and an older widow that would be taken care of by family members, you were expected to remarry. Because that's how they were taken care of. So perhaps her husbands had died in the process or some of these other things. Yet, the thing that I think is most important to note is Jesus doesn't condemn her for the five marriages. What does he condemn her for? The living with the man that she is right now. She didn't enter into that covenant relationship with him. And so, whatever the case is, Jesus says, go get your husband that you don't have. And let's have a conversation. Then, what does she do? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you, get, you start getting close to the heart of the issue? And you're getting really close. Those beads of sweat start forming on their forehead. And you, 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 you got them in that corner. You know what they do? They deflect. Notice what she does in verses 19 to 26. The woman, he, He's right there. Go get your husband, right? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this. She totally sidesteps the thing. And, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place to, where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Powerful dialogue. So what does she do when Jesus gets a bit close? You're getting a bit personal? She turns to a religious debate. She deflects. And she says, well, you know, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about religion. And notice it's almost with an accusatory tone, but it's after she pays a compliment. I perceive you're a prophet. Now let's talk about religion, Mr. Prophet. And she, she goes to, into this debate where is the proper place to worship? You people 
Notice how she says, you people say it's Jerusalem where we ought to worship. Our fathers worship on Mount Gerizim. So which is the proper place to worship? So she brings up a couple of different things. She brings up the social separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. She wants to bring up that, that social, that clannish battle. All right, let's go. Let's get bit into this debate. Isn't it funny how when you start getting close to somebody, they want to fight about something that has been a fight for a very long time? She's trying to deflect within this. So what does Jesus do? Jesus silences the debate with truth. How do you answer somebody that wants to deflect and wants to get into a fight? Just speak the truth. Speak the truth. And Jesus does speak the truth. What was the debate about? She wanted to debate location of worship. Jesus says, let me tell you the truth about worship. What is the truth that he brings out? He says, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor Jerusalem you're going to worship. In other words, it doesn't matter. Location doesn't matter. Question, does it matter? Does it matter if you worship here? Or if you worship at the church down the street? Or if you worship wherever? No. Denominational differences have created such a problem in the church today. People get into a thing where they say, well, what church do you go to? Well, I go to the, the First Baptist Church. Well, where do you go? I go to the Second Baptist Church. Which one do you go to? I go to the Fourth Baptist Church. Because absolutely, the Fourth Baptist Church is better than the First Baptist Church. And, and, and who cares? First, Second, Third, Fourth? I don't... It doesn't matter. What do you believe about Jesus. Notice what he says. The true worship is not about where you worship, but who you worship. And through whom you worship. It's important. It's not just who you worship, but through whom you worship. And that is key. Some people will say, well, I know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? I know God. Do you know God? The problem is God is spirit and he is free. The difficulty is man wants to put God in a box. And we create our box. And she was trying to put God in a box. And Jesus makes a central truth about being a Christian, that God is omnipresent and those that worship him in spirit and truth are true worshipers. It's really the condition of the heart. Paul would write to Timothy this, 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want... The men, notice, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In every place. Mount Zion, fine. Grisham, fine. Out in the middle of the desert, fine. Because God is spirit and you can worship God in all of those places as long as you worship Him. How? Spirit and in truth. But what does Jesus do? Don't miss this. He does call out the false worship of the Samaritans. Why? Because they created a false system of worship against Yahweh God. Notice he says, we Jews, we worship what we know. You Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. 
The Samaritans, because of the animosity, created their own kind of worship that God never allowed. Their own place of worship. For the Jews, God had demanded that there would be one house of worship. But they didn't want to follow after that. And we see that even today, that many people will create their own form of worship or their own style of worship. I will worship God my way. There's even a support group that talks about higher powers. And that in your higher power, your higher power can be whatever you want it to be. Somebody could say, my higher power is a rock. My higher power is a tree. My higher power is a big toe. No. There is only one. And that's Yahweh God. And we worship through Jesus via the Holy Spirit. We worship God, spirit and in truth. And anything apart from that is idolatry. To name a higher power something other than God is idolatry. And he calls her out on that. So he calls her out on her immorality and he calls her out on her idolatry. And so she tries to deflect again in verses 25 to 26. And he says, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ, the one who comes. He'll declare to us all things. What is that deflection? The deflection is, okay, we're not going to talk about my life. We're not going to talk about worship. I'm just waiting for the Messiah to come back. And I love what Jesus says. He says, you're waiting for the Messiah to come back and tell you everything. Guess what? And he uses this word, ego and me. He uses the name of God. He says, I am. The one who is speaking to you, I am. Now, it didn't matter if you were Samaritan or Jew. If you name the name of God like that, that was a declaration. And it would blow her mind within that. I am. And at that point, she realizes that this prophet that told her everything about her, this prophet that is declaring where the true place of worship is, this prophet that is standing before here naming the name of God, is the Messiah. I am He. And then the, the shade over her eyes diminished. She could see Him. Now at this point, the disciples show back up. Verse 27 says, At this point the disciples came and they were amazed and they had been speaking with the woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, Note, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So she's, yeah. And they went out of the city and they were all coming to him. We look at that and it says, Meanwhile, the disciples, while she's having this conversation, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? These guys are just dim. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are wide unto harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one who sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others that have labored and you have not entered into their labor. So what ends up happening? Well, she goes back and she's amazed. She goes back to her city. And she's so amazed on how Jesus had answered her and brought that, that divine presence. Remember, he was bringing the divine presence of God into this woman's life. She was so amazed. She goes back to the city. But did you net? Who did she talk to? Who did she talk to? The men. Why the men? Because the women didn't like her. Why? Because she might be after their husband. But she was okay and talked. And she goes and she tells the men. Why? Because they're the spiritual leaders. But two, she had a better relationship with them. She goes, she goes you've got to come back and you've got to see. And, and this woman, somewhere along the line, accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Is he not the Messiah? I think he is. You've got to come and see. Meanwhile, they're all coming out to the well. And the disciples show back up. Woman's forgotten her pot. She's no longer thirsty. Why? Because she's fulfilled. No longer thirsty. She's filled. Excited. Disciples say, Lord, we brought you food. He said, I'm not hungry. What? Did somebody bring you some food? We didn't know about it. My food is to do my Father's will. What's interesting there is not only was the woman fulfilled by the presence of Jesus, but Jesus was fulfilled by doing ministry and serving the woman. There is an element of fulfillment that takes place when you give yourself away and when you surrender your life and you see God doing a work and you are just filled, blessed to be in that place. And the disciples completely missed it. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. You have not experienced this kind of fulfillment. When was the last time that you led somebody to come to know Jesus? You prayed with them. When was the last time that you counseled with somebody and watched their life turn around? When was the last time that you witnessed with somebody and and their life was lifted up and you poured yourself into their life and you saw their life change? That is the fulfillment. Jesus says, I am fulfilled when I'm doing my Father's will. You want to fill that God-shaped void? Share Jesus. And you'll be filled. And refilled. The disciples were so earthly minded, they missed it. And then Jesus uses this parable of the harvest. And He challenges disciples. He says, look, don't say yet it's four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, look up your eyes, and the fields are white. And you might say, okay, well that's kind of an allegory. He's looking at a field. No. Don't say we're going to share with people later. Share with them right now. Share with who right now? All the Samaritans that are coming out of the city right now with this woman that are coming this way. I planted a seed, and here comes your harvest. You guys are going to share. All of those people. When is it time to share Jesus? Now. Not later. Now. When is it time to, to pray with somebody? Don't say to somebody, I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you later and walk away. What should you do? Pray now. You see somebody that has need? Stop. I don't care if you're in, the, in Walmart, Bymart, Freddy's. 
What would it be like if Christians were stopping and praying in the middle of stores? Parking lots. Don't pray in the middle of streets. That's get to a safe place. But think about it. When you're talking with somebody, and I know you all go and fellowship at Walmart on a regular basis. Pray. Can I have church in Walmart? Sure. And pray. And pray out loud. Pray out loud. Let people hear. Because some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. The best time for ministry is now. And to be able to enjoy that harvest. Verses 39 to 45, Jesus talks about this harvest. And what ends up happening? He says, from the city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus and they were asking him to stay with him, he stayed, what, two more days. Here he goes, violating the social boundaries again. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard what? For ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Notice the testimony. God does not have grandchildren. God has children. The woman had heard the word and she brought it to them and she testified the testimony of what she had heard. They came out and they wanted to check it out and see if it's so. Jesus said, yeah, I'll stay with you two more days. And his word was transforming lives as he was staying with them. And their testimony is, I'm not believing because you said it. I'm believing because he said it. And that's the power of the word of God. Your role is to introduce people to Jesus and let Jesus do the teaching. We need to bring Jesus to people and then get out of the way. And Jesus demonstrated to his disciples how a harvest works. And many people were coming to faith within that. After two days, in verse 43, he says, After two days he went forth into the Galilee. Note, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his country. And so he went, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did, where? In Jerusalem, at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So the Galileans that were down at the Feast of Unleavened Bread saw the miracles, they came back home. Jesus shows up and he is sharing with the Galileans, all the farmers and everybody that was there. But he had no honor in Cana, nor in Nazareth. He comes back to that land. Do you remember what the first miracle was that Jesus did? He did what? Turn water into where? Cana. This is called the Cana cycle. He started in Cana, went down into Jerusalem, came back up through Samaria and back up to Cana. And there is no honor there. Why? Because he has another divine appointment to have. While he is in Cana, verses 43 to 46, he goes up into this, this land of the Galilee, into Cana, and he's already done one sign. He's going to do his second sign in Cana, which... After the turning of the water or the wine, which should have turned everybody around, he does a second miracle to establish faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. If you come to God in faith, then you'll believe. The Samaritans did that. And now he's in Cana, in Nazareth, in his own hometown, and... He's going to run into somebody that is desperate. 
Notice verse 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. There was a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we have this, this nobleman, this Gentile that would have been stationed in Capernaum. Capernaum was 17 miles from Cana to the west, or I'm sorry, to the east, 17 miles away. He hears that this Jesus miracle worker has come back from Jerusalem. He's up in the Cana area and he comes to him and he says to him, my son is sick, sick unto death. Now, this man's faith was based on miracles. That's all, that's all he had. If you had a child that was that sick, sick unto death, what would stop you from trying to find the cure? What would hinder you? Would you travel across the country to the Mayo Clinic? Would you go out of country to some foreign nation that has the cure for whatever the disease or the illness is? As a parent, would you do everything to save your child? Including crossing social boundaries. Yes. And so he goes into Canaan because he heard this Jesus, this miracle worker that was there, and he comes to him by faith. Faith in the miracles. Because the miracles authenticate the message. And so within this, he comes to him, and Jesus says to him, which is interesting, he's speaking to the man, but he's really speaking to the crowd of people in Cana. Notice how he does this. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Is he talking to the noblemen? No, he's talking to the crowd that's watching this scene. The royal officer said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. I love this. Because what you see is the heart of the father. He says, Jesus, right now is not time for a theological lesson. We got to go. Deal with these guys later. We've got to go. Jesus is talking to this crowd and being theological with them. Unless you see signs, you're not going to believe. He says, just come. I came to you. Just come. Deal with them later. And so I love the fact that, that he is just there. Heal my son. I don't care about this movement. Don't give him a speech. And notice what Jesus does. So Jesus turns and says to him, Go, your son lives. No speech, no magical incantation, a command, an imperative, go, and a statement of fact, present active imperative, go, your son right now is living and going to continue to live. It is this tense that has a present tense with a future action that is in it. And the man goes. You know what faith is? Faith is seeing God's promise as a completed action. That's faith. I see God's promise as a completed action. And so the father leaves and starts his journey back. Now, as I said, it was a 17-mile walk from Cana all the way down into Capernaum. It could have taken him five to eight hours. We don't know how long it took. It's a hill country, so it would have taken quite a while. But he went based off the word. He didn't argue. Jesus said, go, your son lives. He didn't argue. He didn't say, are you sure? He just turns and walks away. 
That is faith. And he accepts that faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Your son lives. So he starts walking all the way down. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, which he was probably not far from the city. Most likely off the road by Arbel. And he's on his way down there. And the slaves come to him and say to him, your son is living. So he inquired of them the hour that it became better. And notice he doesn't question it. What's his question based on? When? When? When did it change? And they told him, well, it was about the seventh hour yesterday that the fever had left him. And the father knew it was the hour which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again, the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Can Jesus heal from a distance? Yes, he is 17 miles away. With a word, he says, your son lives. He didn't even have to be present. Now, if that is true in Jesus' earthly ministry, consider how true it is in his continuing ministry from heaven. Can he speak the word and you be healed? Yes. And if he speaks the word, it will be so. As he says. Note the father goes all the way back and he doesn't question, are you sure he's alive? He wants to know the time. There's an element in here that I want to touch on quickly. It's called stages of belief. The father exhibited Faith in accepting the word and turning and going. But then when he heard the news, it said again that he believed. Now, was he in a state of unbelief? No, he was in a state of belief. But there are levels of faith that we mature to as these assurances are afforded to us by God. It, faith is a living part of our being. And faith grows. As we see God fulfill His Word as He says, the faith I have today is not the same kind of faith that I had when I first got saved. Why? Because I'm seeing the greater things that God does. And it's a faith that is a growing faith. And it's a faith that can be trusted. One spark of faith brings life. But that spark of faith turns into a forest fire as the Holy Spirit fans it. And it will blow and it will grow. And within this, Jesus establishes who he is. My encouragement to you is this. If you feel tonight, whether you're here in this room or watching online, you're that one that is not experiencing that fulfillment and that fullness that God has for you. There's still this something going on. Seek him. Let Jesus check you. Let Him question you. Let Him draw out what's going on in your life and then confess it. Because He already knows. It's not like you're going to tell Him something He doesn't know. But as you're real with Him, He will bring in that living water. And maybe tonight, you just need that freshness of the Spirit of God to flow in and through you. During our worship time of communion, this is where we connect with God. Out of obedience and out of love, when we surrender ourselves and we say, God, here I am.
broken. But you're putting all the pieces together. I'm struggling to believe. Like the father who had the demoniac son, Lord, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. Grow my faith. Tell me the things that I need to know, not that I want to hear. And like the nobleman, come to Jesus. Because He's your only hope. Surrender everything. Does Jesus have the power to save? Yes. Did He demonstrate it at the cross? Yes. And the resurrection. There isn't anything that you think that you can add to your life that's going to bring value more than just letting Jesus give you that value. Let's pray. God, I thank You for tonight. I thank You that we have the opportunity to worship You both in music, worship You in the study of Your Word and to grow and to celebrate this communion. Lord, You've given us this table as a memorial. The bread, Lord Jesus, represents Your body. The cup represents Your blood. And as we take these elements, may we remember You and all that they mean, and all that they, they, they represent. That forgiveness of sin and that new life. Tonight as we celebrate communion, you're invited to come up as the Lord puts it on your heart. To come and take a piece of bread or a cup. Hang on to it until everybody has, has come up and received. This table is open to anybody who names the name of Christ. If you're watching online, you'll want to get something to join us with. A piece of bread and some juice. What would keep you from taking communion tonight? Two things. One, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, this has no meaning for you. You've got to let Jesus fill your heart, wash you, and, and, and accept Him as Lord and Savior. Then, the means by which that happened, the cross, will have meaning. Maybe tonight that will be your prayer. Or if you have sin in your life that you're not willing to get rid of, don't take communion. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, but if you're going to habitually continue in your sin and take communion, that just makes a mockery of it. It's not worship. This is for you and for us, individually and collectively, as we worship Jesus. God, I thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, may you fill our hearts and fill this place even now. In Jesus' name, amen.
stand before the Lord. God, we thank You. As Your children, we stand before a holy God, pure. God, in order to be pure, though, that sin that separated us had to be paid for. We acknowledge the fact that as sinners, Jesus died for our sin. And He took the penalty for us 
stood in our place to give life. In honor of You, Lord Jesus, we hold this bread and hold this cup. And as You broke the bread and gave it to Your disciples and said, Take, eat. This bread represents My body given for You. You gave everything so that we would have new life. And we have that new life now, today. And that never changes. We are looking forward to that day when we are made complete. When we shed this body of sin, receive that new body that You have set for us to live in eternity and looking into the face of love. We thank You for this bread. We ask Your blessing upon it as we take it together in honor of You, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. As we hold this cup, Lord Jesus, we, in our mind, picture that night when You raised that glass. And you passed it around the table. He said, take drink. This cup represents my blood that's shed for the remission of sins. This cup is the new covenant ratified by my blood. No doubt the disciples would have been clueless. But come resurrection day, would have blown their mind. And come that time in Acts when the disciples would gather together and they would raise that glass, they would have fresh in their mind the promise that you have given and putting full faith and trust in that promise. A promise guaranteed that they would be given life. This cup represents life. We thank you for all that it means for us. As we take it together, we do so in honor of you. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring. Yeah.
There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. encouragement to you as we heard Pastor Kerry in his message that say now is the time for the harvest and to share. And we just sang about God, reveal yourself to me so that then I in turn can reveal you to others. So go and be God's light and God's salt in the earth this week. And everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.